This is R.J. Rushdooney, Easy Chair Number 82, October 23, 1984. Well, first of all, I'd like to deal with a subject that I wrote uh, a somewhat long letter to someone abroad about. A young man, a graduate student, very, very able, who is writing a thesis or a dissertation, I forget which, about certain aspects of my writings. And I explained to him what my perspective on my writings in theology is. I'm going to be writing on this and already have done a little bit towards it, but I'd like to share some of the uh, thinking that will go into this work with you. Now, when we look at the history of theology, we find that it is indeed a rather unusual and uh, checkered one. First of all, in the first period of the history of the church, for six or more centuries, the theologians were men involved in the life of the church men who were active as pastors and then as bishops. These were men with a background in the world. They were often former lawyers. Moreover, because the Roman Empire was incapable of delivering justice to the peoples, the result was that uh, the people increasingly went to the church courts for a justice. Because in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul told the church that they were not to go to ungodly courts for justice, but to seek it in their own midst, that the saints were to judge the world, that is, to govern the world, using the word judge there in the same sense as in the book of Judges. They were therefore to decide all cases at law amongst themselves. And so the Christians did precisely that. Before very long, the reputation of the Christian courts had so grown that the unbelievers were going to the church court to have their problems settled. And the church elders or the church courts were made up of men with a background of knowledge and experience, not only in Scripture, but in the problems of the world. The net result was that after a few generations, whether you were a Christian or non-Christian, if you wanted justice, you went to the Christian court. This had proceeded so far that when Constantine became emperor and a Christian, he saw no use in uh, continuing the facade of a uh, system of courts when people were bypassing them. So he simply ordered that from there on, every man who was elected as bishop would have to be at the same time a Roman magistrate. He would have to dress as a Roman magistrate and would provide justice for any and all. Well, this was no problem for the bishops. They immediately took 
continued their work and took over more and more of the work of uh, uh, civil and sometimes criminal cases. Now, one of the things we must remember, and I've referred to, I believe, before, is that to this day the garb of a bishop remains the same, the garb of a Roman magistrate, so that in his garb, his mitre, his staff, he is a Roman magistrate. Well, this meant that for some centuries the theologians were men who were pastors and bishops, men who had a background of dealing with the problems of the world. This is why the theology of the early church is not easy reading for people today because we are used to textbook theology. The theologians then dealt with issues as they arose and developed their theology in terms of the issues. However, little by little, this gave way, the pastor and bishop as theologian, to the monk as theologian. Now, the monks were the builders of Europe, but what happened was that it was a particular type of monk that developed as the theologian, the monk who gradually became the teacher, the university scholar, so that while for some centuries, a great many centuries, the monk was the theologian, he was at the same time the university professor, and he was removed from the work of the parish church. The culmination of the monk as theologian, of course, was Martin Luther, the last great uh, monk theologian. Now, the earlier pattern of the uh, pastor, bishop as theologian then shifted to a new arena, the Reformed churches, and almost exclusively there. Briefly, you had this pattern in the Church of England, but very briefly. But Calvin, of course, replaced the bishop in Geneva and continued to function as the teacher, as well as the one who was the troubleshooter dealing with various moral, civil, and criminal problems in the church courts. This, of course, did not suit the Council of Geneva. They did not get rid of one uh, incompetent bishop to get a very highly competent one. Incidentally, the so-called uh, strict blue laws of Geneva were simply those that had existed as a part of the old order. The difference was that now they were administered. However, what happened across the boards in most of Europe was that the theologian was now the university professor. As I said, the exception was 
the Reformed tradition, and then the United States until about the 1830s. With the academic orientation of theology, sound doctrine was further isolated from the people in the church. Teaching became a very popular pietistic kind of thing. Now, this had happened previously. In fact, it was this type of thing that led to the crisis of the medieval church. Theology had become so far removed from the parish church that the average person in the late Middle Ages was listening to wandering friars who were preaching, some of them very good and some very bad, listening to any person who came along and was ready to preach and teach on a popular level, and very often a very poor level. This type of thing continued with the Reformation and the Anabaptist movement, which had deep medieval roots. The Anabaptists were hostile to the educated leadership that the um, Anglican, the Lutheran, the Reformed, and the Catholic churches provided. They wanted something on their level. This, as I said, was a continuation of the medieval motif. Well, what has happened, of course, is that today theology is the province of theologians who are teachers in seminaries. It is academic. It is unrelated to the problems of the world. It is unrelated to the needs of the people in the pew. Now, when I began to write, I received a letter from a very fine professor of theology, a very kindly and gracious man, by the way, telling me in a kindly way that my whole approach was wrong, and that the error of my ways had culminated in institutes of biblical law. This error, he said, was that I was writing for the Christian community when I should be writing to theologians, to scholars. Then, he said, we can enter into a dialogue and there can be a scholarly exchange of ideas. The whole point of his letter was that the world of theology should be limited to scholars, that writing should be for scholars with an exchange back and forth endlessly and that it was a mistake to try to speak to the people. Of course, this is the disease that has infected the church, Catholic and Protestant. Theology is separated from the people. And the average pastor today does not attempt to go deeply into the matters of faith and life, the matters of 
a doctrinal perspective on all things. The net result is that the life of the church is a life of great poverty. Now, I believe this is changing. I hope I have been instrumental in this change. But I believe that theology must relate itself to the problems of our time and to the problems of people who are sitting in the pew, to the problems of people who are working, who are in politics, economics, agriculture, every area of life and thought. The idea that sparked the Reformation and which had roots in the late medieval era was that both the word of God and the preaching of the church should speak to the needs of the plowboy and move him to action. We've lost this. And I believe that the seminaries and Christian colleges of our time have become a curse. Go to any seminary across the country and the favored students are always the ones who are going to teach. Perhaps there is a seminary somewhere that is different. But all the ones I know, the favored students are the ones who are planning to go into teaching so that these seminaries exist to reproduce seminary professors. Secondarily, and rather reluctantly, they train pastors. There will be a, a separate department for practical theology. As though anything that is practical is uh, inferior. And the professor of practical theology will not be a scholar. He'll be somebody that they have called to the seminary from the pastorate whom they feel would be the least objectionable person to add to the faculty. Now, this is the problem in our time. The theologian is an elitist. And this is what I, well, to put it bluntly, despise about theologians. They're always going into esoteric thinking. They're indulging in speculative theology, esoteric theology, symbolic theology, everything to make theology and the Bible less accessible to the people. The faith becomes an elitist thing, and this is contemptible. I think God will judge all such people. The faith is not the monopoly of a small element. Well, I got a little wound up on that and took more time than I had intended. Now to go on to another subject. A recent book published this year, 1984, by Regnery Gateway in Chicago by Harold M. Voth, V-O-T-H-M-D, Families, the Future of America, is... Uh, not a remarkable book, but has some good things to say. Let me quote from page 45. 
The two most fundamental taboos of civilization are cannibalism and incest. The reasons should be obvious to every thinking person. The prohibition of sexual relations within families is a key element in personality development and the civilizing process. The very fact that serious consideration is being given to adopting a permissive attitude toward incest is unquestionably the most serious sign of all with regard to the decay of our society. The abolition of the incest taboo would be the end point of the current trend in society toward ever greater gr direct gratification of the instinctual side of life. Some gratification is, of course, necessary, but much of our instinct and energy forms the basis for the creative process and cultural development. Cultural growth is lagging. The quest for excellence is disappearing, predictably, as the instincts and the senses are ever more directly gratified through drugs, freewheeling sexual styles, pornography, and near-pornographic movies, plays, and publications, homosexuality, child prostitution, an overall decline in morality, and now possibly, God forbid, incest itself. Viewing any of these developments in isolation fails to reveal the big picture. The tendency is to brush off swinging sexual styles as a passing fad, or the normalization of homosexuality as a transient event, which will in time pass away, or pornography is harmless if you do not let your child get hooked, or the reevaluation of incest as the workings of the misguided mind of a kook, etc. By lumping all these moral developments together, by backing off and viewing them from a distance, and by looking into the psychopathology and the personalities of those who embrace the developments, in particular their champions. Then you begin to really see and understand the extent of our disintegration. Some brush all this aside and claim that the next generation will clear all this up assuming with his claim that wisdom and emotional health automatically appear with each new generation. They do not. Unquote. Well, that's a very important point, and it can be noted that uh, one of the things that we see today on the part of anthropologists is an increasing tolerance of cannibalism, as though this is a part of a culture that we have no business bothering ourselves with. Let them live this way. It's their lifestyle. Well, on to another point. I was very much struck by something recently and I think it's a phenomenon we see today. When we look back at Lenin and Trotsky, we think of them as Marxists who were working within the so uh, old Russia before the revolution as avowed Marxists. This is not true. They called themselves and their party the Social Democrats the Social Democrats. 
They were going under a name that would bring favor to themselves, and as a result were not honest. Well, we only have a limited number of people in this country who identify themselves as communists or as socialists. We have a great many such who call themselves Republicans and Democrats. Now to another work, not a recent one. This was published by St. Martin's Press in 1982 and I don't think is in print, although it possibly could be. It was edited by Robert W. Whitaker, W-H-I-T-A-K-E-R, The New Right Papers. The uh, contents... Vary in quality. Some of the essays are excellent, others of indifferent value. I thought this from uh, an essay by Robert J. Hoy was interesting, and I quote The exquisite hypocrisy shown by some liberals during the textbook protest was epitomized for me by the editor of the Montgomery County, Maryland Journal. He ridiculed the actions of those who opposed certain textbooks because of their obscene passages. Yet, when confronted by a local parents' group, he refused even to publish those portions of the textbook being criticized because, he explained, they were too vulgar to print in his newspaper. That is, too vulgar for his adult readers in one of the most sophisticated counties in America, but not too vulgar for nine-year-olds in West Virginia, unquote. Then another fact of interest, and this is from an essay by Ronald F. Doxai, The Other Sector, and I quote, the Salvation Army beds and feeds six times more people who would otherwise sleep hungry on the street than the sum of all the federally supported welfare projects in New York City. It was a private effort marshaled by the Upjohn Foundation working with the Systems Development Corporation which first worked out a national campaign to train the structurally unemployed, and it is still doing it more successfully than the federally funded Comprehensive Employment and Training Act, CETA, projects. America's 350,000 churches with 122 million members own assets worth $31 billion dollars. With this, they tutor underprivileged children, work to improve neighborhoods, fund low-cost, low-income housing projects, and foster home health care projects. Last year, Americans spent $6.2 billion on the elderly relatives living with them, senior citizens not wanting institutionalization in a nursing home 
which is often seen by these senior citizens as a prelude to death. Despite institutionalized Medicare, Medicaid incentives for such nursing home institutionalization, making it more economically attractive to go the nursing home route, these citizens chose private action. Kiwanis, Rotary, Civitan, and Lions Clubs, Chambers of Commerce, Masonic Lodges, Knights of Columbus, the Church of Latter-day Saints, and hundreds of other religious, civic, and fraternal service organizations with over 48 million members work more than bankers or civil service employees hours to improve their communities and nations. Hundreds of labor unions with 21 million members not only bargain with their respective bosses, but run hospitals and nursing homes, build retirement centers, fund civil rights projects, and hold community fund drives. There are 650,000 organizations in the United States, all of which file with the Internal Revenue Service every year a statement of their receipts, expenses, assets, and liabilities. The total assets of all these nonprofit organizations, excluding corporations, is $531 billion, using 1979 figures. They perform various kinds of charitable work, projects of a greater variety and scope than the conventional images we associate with the word charity would reflect. We are not only talking about hospitals, churches, and the Salvation Army. We are talking about country clubs, agricultural marketing cooperatives, professional advancement organizations, trade associations, and the multiplicity of other 501c3 organizations which provide benefits not only for their members, but for the community at large, unquote. Now, given that fact, we still see the federal government going after these 501c3 organizations, the tax-exempt organizations, as though they re represented some kind of evil. We need to recognize that the private sector, or let us call it the public sector, is against the status sector, is doing far more than the federal government to alleviate conditions of human need. And if the federal government would get off the backs of the people, more could be done. A taxation drains away more and more of the funds that would otherwise be going to these groups. Well, from the same author's uh, chapter, I'd like to quote something about his experiences in the Soviet Union. I quote, On a U.S. Commission trip to the Soviet Union five years ago, I inadvertently bumped into a warehouse in the southern Siberian city of Alma-Ata. The warehouse had an unlocked door, my use of which brought me into a shining plastic-coated cavern, 
extending for as far as my contact-lensed eyes could see. I looked at the artificially colored purple, orange, and green cylindrical columns for some minutes before I could make out what it was I had come upon. It was later explained to me by a Romanian economist, whom I found to be less Marxist than cynical in his predisposition, that I had come upon hula hoops, thousands, perhaps millions, of perfectly stacked hula hoops. Somewhere, in whatever the Soviets call their ministry to determine the current flavor of consumer tastes, some alert microeconomic analyzer read about the hula hoop craze in the West. He or she read in a back issue of Time or Life magazine that every third American was buying a wooden, plastic-coated, three-foot diametered hoop with which one played homegrown varieties of hoochie-coochie. Those of us who live in America at the time can remember the craze which must have lasted as long as six months in the middle 1950s before it petered out and which has never been since heard from. The American magazine our Soviet minister for consumer tastes official must have been reading was probably published during the second year of Eisenhower's first term. Perhaps the passing scene contributed to the fact that the 1973 manufactured uh, Soviet hula hoops never became a big seller. It might also suggest why the 1980 Soviet-made Soviet Zills, purported to be the Mercedes-Benz of the Volga, look like a 1952 Chevrolet. Why Soviet shoes look as if they were made for Disneyland cartoon characters, and why Soviet toothpaste tastes like plaster. This is not meant to be an exercise in cruelty but to provide less than subtle examples of why Soviet five-year plans or the less obvious westernized forms of centralized planning are grossly inefficient means of gauging what it is people really want to buy. Well, <laughs> maybe in another century the hula hoop Craze will come back, and the Soviet Union, if it is still here, which is not likely, will cash in big. Now to a very important book by Herbert I. London. Why Are They Lying to Our Children? Published at 1595 by Stein and Day in New York City. It's a book about what our schools are teaching. And the essence of it is that we have no future, that the world is going to end very soon in a nuclear disaster or pollution. And the result is that uh, students are made to feel guilty because if they live in affluence, think of how others are living. Well, the guilt is very real. The author, London, Dr. London, cites 
from Kenneth Keniston's Young Radicals, a student who was quoted as saying, you don't know what hell is like till you've lived in Scarsdale. Since most people in America aspire to that hell, you've got to wonder what guilt this young man must feel to inspire that statement. Although this exact quote isn't found in other textbooks, the general sentiment is. Now, <clears throat> we have created such a situation that he says one of his daughters came home. Well, let me read. One evening, more than a year ago, I came home from the university, he's a professor, to find my elder daughter, then thirteen, with tears streaming down her cheeks. Since this wasn't the first time I had encountered such a scene, my immediate reaction was to attribute this emotional outburst to a problem with her friends. Problems with friends like mood swings are not unusual for budding adolescents. This time, however, was different. When I gently inquired why she was crying, Stacy said, because I don't have a future. Well, he proceeded to tell his daughter that was nonsense, but then to continue to counter my assurances. Stacy produced a mimeographed sheet suggesting that a dismal future or none at all is what awaits her. It detailed in vivid language the horrors of the next 25 years. Worldwide famine, overpopulation between 8 billion and 10 billion people across the globe, air pollution so bad everyone will wear gas masks, befouled rivers and streams that will mandate cleaning tablets in our drinking water, a greenhouse effect that will account for the melting of the polar ice caps, and worldwide devastation of coastal cities, <clears throat> and an epidemic of cancer brought on by damage to the ozone layer. At no point did the author of those claims mention probability, nor did words such as might or unlikely find their way into the text. It was, by any standard, a litany of doom, and my daughter was certainly justified in grieving. The only problem, of course, is that the sheet's claims were misguided and misleading, unquote. Well, the book goes through uh, grade school and university textbooks to show that this is the kind of thinking that marks education today that what these men have worked to do is to create an adversary culture. They are hostile to everything. But their hostility is essentially to man and to God. For example, he quotes, one of these intellectual spokesmen, Dr. Bernard Dixon, express the extreme view that the environment must remain unchanged. In an article, a new scientist, he argues, some of us, who might happily bid farewell to a virulent virus or bacterium, 
might well have qualms about eradicating forever a higher animal, whether rat or bird or flea, that passes on such microbes to man. Where, moving up the size and nastiness scale, smallpox virus, typhoid, typhoid fever bacilli, malarial parasites, uh, schizotosomiosis worms, I got over that, locusts, rats, does conservation become important? There is, in fact, no logical line that can be drawn. Every one of the arguments adduced by conservationists applies to the world of vermin and pathogenic microbes just as they apply to whales, gentians, and flamingos. Even the tiniest and most virulent virus qualifies. If I may interrupt for a moment, this is an argument that's becoming increasingly common, that man has no right to tamper with anything in the environment. So don't you go trying to cure your cold. You're going to murder all those cold uh, viruses or germs or whatever they are. To continue with Dr. London, this argument suggests that every creation, every microbe on God's earth has some purpose, sometimes hidden to us, that cannot be disturbed without significant harm to the future of the globe. Any technological change, however minor, is believed to modify the relationship of man to his environment, and as a consequence, uproot the essential balance in nature. If Prometheus is unbound, Dr. Dixon would have pinned and tethered, unquote. Now, the assumption here is that nature is perfect as is, not fallen, and therefore we dare not tamper with nature. And Dr. London asks, it seems to me worth asking why. If God wanted the world unchanged, did he give people the power to think? These people, he says, talk about us being a part of the world and living in harmony with nature, which means never attacking any virus or any bug. So, Jonas Salk is an enemy of nature for finding a cure for polio. We have, he says, a book by C.D. Stone, scholar and lawyer, entitled Should Trees Have Standing, which presents the case for the legal rights of forests so that trees should have as much standing in court as a person. So if you go out and chop a tree... You can be indicted, I assume, for murder. To see no difference, says Dr. London, between man and natural conditions is absurd, and he says, ultimately, immoral. Moreover, he goes into the uh, nonsense about uh, the world population doubling nearly every 35 years, which is nonsense, and how uh, so much of the talk about overpopulation is ridiculous. Moreover, 
These people keep repeating statements which they put into textbooks without any evidence, or if they supply evidence, it is manufactured. Such statements as, every night about two-thirds of the world's people go to bed hungry. And he says this is not accurate. Moreover, uh, since India and China, he says, account for about half of the world's population, they're important in any reckoning of two-thirds of the world's population. But uh, as he points out, food production in virtually every poor country is great enough to provide an adequate diet for everyone. So that uh, if there are problems, they are state-created problems, not overpopulation, not the fact that the land is no longer capable of producing enough to keep things going. He does go into Paul Ehrlich's nonsense to expose it, and he calls attention, as more than a few able scholars have done, to the fact that there is actually an increase in resources because the whole earth is an almost inexhaustible bundle of resources. And our ability to go deeper and get these resources is only increasing. He cites some of the extravagant kinds of statements about the environment and damage to the environment, which he says range from uh, intemperate to hysterical. And he calls attention to the absurdity of these statements. I think, however, the key factor in this book comes out in a statement he quotes from Stuart Brand, creator of the Whole Earth Catalog, who made this statement in Next Magazine. And I quote, we have wished, we echo freaks, for a disaster or for a dramatic social change to come and bomb us into the Stone Age, where we might live like Indians in our valley, with our localism, our appropriate technology, our gardens, and our homemade religion, guilt-free at last, unquote. And that's the key. That's the key. When men do not find their atonement in Christ, as I have written, and I will have something at great length published on it, hopefully, by the end of next year, when they do not have their atonement in Christ, they're going to seek self-atonement. And this leads to sadomasochistic activity, punishing other people and punishing themselves. They do need atonement. And man-made forms of atonement are deadly. And Stuart Brand says, we can only be guilt-free when we have created the world disaster. So these people, whether they are eco-freaks, writing in popular publications, or professors writing textbooks, 
or men in Washington and Moscow and other capitals, if they do not have atonement through Christ, they are going to seek atonement for themselves and for others through sadomasochistic activities. And this is why the world is again and again in very serious trouble, man-made troubles, man-made disasters, so that this is what we need to concern ourselves with. If we want to turn things around, the problem is man, man and his relationship to Christ. In the conclusion, Dr. London, who is... Uh, a dean at the New York University, as well as holding a number of other positions. Dr. London asks some key questions to the advocates of gloomy predictions. And I quote, If environmental damage is so significant and the cause of many diseases, why have life expectancy rates been steadily increasing? If the world is divided into rich and poor states, and if the gap between them continues to widen, how can you explain the emergence of a middle class in much of the so-called third world? If we are running out of materials, why, with few exceptions, has the price of minerals decreased when demand for them is high? If our environment is so badly polluted, how do you account for the reduction in hydrocarbons and carbon monoxide in the atmosphere. The answers to these questions reveal that things are not entirely as bleak as we have been led to believe. Clearly an advocate will try to evade the issue by discussing the potential for catastrophe. But catastrophe always is possible. The point is whether it is probable. Teachers have an obligation to be fair, even when they cannot always be objective. Fairness in this context means providing as much reliable information as possible and avoiding the zealous pursuit of only one point of view. This brings me to an absurd but nonetheless revealing example of what several teachers in a southern state considered fairness. In a discussion about demography, I illustrated the exaggerated predictions about population based on projections in 1965. The projections were made by Paul Ehrlich, and the corrections were made by the United States population statisticians in 1982. After I had completed my remarks, one teacher raised his hand and said, in this school system we believe in fairness. If you're going to present the UN statistics, then you should also present Paul Ehrlich. I thought that this fellow must also teach the earth is flat to be fair to the proponent that it is round. One isn't being fair to students by balancing an accurate statement with an inaccurate one. Unquote. An excellent book, Why Are They Lying to Our Children? by Herbert I. London, published this year at 1595 by Stein and Day.
Now to another work, this time by uh, Joseph Turba, The American Retreat, the Reagan Foreign and Defense Policy, published by Regnery Gateway in Chicago, 1895. This is an excellent analysis of the problems we face in our foreign policy. As uh, Dr. Cherba points out, we saw a tremendous retreat in our capacity to defend ourselves and in the conduct of our foreign policy under Carter. Then, he says, Reagan came along with an excellent statement of the problem and excellent proposals for its solution. But he says, unfortunately, the conduct of the Reagan administration has not been that different from the conduct of the Carter administration. In key areas, it has been weak. So that we have continued the, re the retreat, perhaps on a modified scale as compared to what was the case before. But all the same, the retreat continues. One of the comments frequently made about the forthcoming election is that because we have three or four justices, possibly even five, who are old and may be retiring or dying before the uh, next election in uh, 1986, or uh, 88, excuse me. It is important that our uh, next president be someone who will appoint the right man. Now, I hold no brief for Carter or for Mondale, his vice president, or for Mondale's candidacy. But when we look at the court, the Republican Party does not look too good. All but two of the current justices were named by Republicans, by Eisenhower, who named one, Nixon named three, and Ford named one, and Reagan one. Johnson named one, Thurgood Marshall, and Kennedy another, Byron White. There isn't that much difference between them. And unfortunately, all the presidents have gone basically to the same group of lawyers for their recommendations as to who should be appointed. Thus, while I am definitely not for Mondale, and I do believe Mondale might make a somewhat worse appointment, we have not seen the Republicans to date make any dramatic change in the nature of the court. Republican nominations have been uniformly poor. Uh, the best you can say for their 
one or two of their nominees is that they were mildly conservative liberals, not extreme liberals. Well, now to another item from the Daily News Digest for October the 10th, 1984. Nicaragua dictator Ortega met with 160 show people in California. Actors included Elizabeth Montgomery, Mike Farrell, Charles Hayde, Bonnie Franklin, and others. A $125 person reception uh, on the 8th, sponsored by the Hollywood-based Committee of Concern, after which Ortega then flew to Harvard for a speech where he was cheered by 2,300 people. Then... From the October 1984 commentary, there is an excellent article, Why the Schools May Not Improve, by Joseph Adelson. In the course of this, he uh, calls attention to the defensive tactics of the educational lobby and of the media. And he says, here are the major themes used to defend the state schools. Things really aren't so bad. Some things may not be good, but others are first rate. Those who criticize the school do so out of base motives. Perhaps things were bad at one time, but that was long ago. And finally, and above all, those who criticize the schools have a political end in mind. They are trying to turn back the clock. It's an excellent article, and I commend it to you. Uh, then you might look at Naming Day in Berkeley by Louis Rappaport, who describes his return to Berkeley from Israel and meeting with a lot of his uh, fellow radical students of some years ago. And... Uh, going to a naming ceremony. And I think this very clearly shows the absurdity of liberal religion in every group today. Catholic, Protestant, Jewish, you name it. They had a post-reform rabbi who was present, and because these were non-religious Jews who had no desire to have any connection with Judaism, and yet wanted to be able to call themselves some kind of new Jew, this rabbi said things like, you are the tradition to them. Well, in the case of this naming ceremony, the wife, one of the major figures in the campus movement of a few years back, wanted her child uh, to be left as is, no circumcision. But the father, who was against everything that his heritage involved, still felt that the child should be circumcised. That one thing alone should mark some relationship to his past. Now let me quote. So they reached a compromise. A doctor came over 
and he did a partial solution. The 50% solution. I didn't feel I'd be breaking a law of God if I didn't have my son circumcised, Jeff snickered. It wasn't a theological question at all. Well, at every turn we see our liberals making the descent into insanity. It's a good place for them. Our time is about up, and uh, I've enjoyed this session with you, and I'm looking forward to our next session in a couple of weeks. Thank you for listening, and God bless you.